we didn't see anybody else in the industry who was studying their products, studying the product's effects in humans. And we thought that was super important for the message that we wanted to tell. We knew we had created this product that was super versatile, that anybody could incorporate into their day, but we wanted to sort of show them what to expect. And we didn't just want to tell them. We wanted to come from a place of truth. That's always been very important to us in terms of adoption of the brand and the product, that we were truth tellers in the industry. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer, and we are kicking things off with a mini celebration. OMG, okay, my brand, Restart CBD, just celebrated four years in business officially last week, August 18th for anyone counting the days, and I feel both grateful and overwhelmed at how far we have come as a brand and what we've been able to accomplish and yet realize all at the same time just how much there is still to endure in this industry. This podcast has been one of the most enriching things I could have possibly ever walked into. And for me, it came as an extension of the journey that I was navigating as an entrepreneur in this industry. I try to make these interviews impactful and relatable because I'm absorbing this information and applying it to my own business right alongside you. And as you know, Texas barely has a medical marijuana program. And with that said, I do think it will be some time until you see regulated adult use here. But what I've also observed is Texas is in a very unique position as the hemp-derived market is taking off and leading a lot of the exploration of minor cannabinoids. And so the market and marketplace that we see today is constantly being reshaped. And I'm very fortunate to have a brand and to sit in a position to help guide that conversation. Thank you so much for celebrating this milestone with me and for tuning into another episode of the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Now, if you didn't catch last week's episode, I'm introducing some new segments onto the podcast. The first is to highlight what is trending in our industry. So here are three things that happened recently that I think you should know about. The first one is reported by MJ Biz Daily, and the title of the article is Several State Marijuana Legalization Initiatives Could Make Fall Ballots. This is the latest update in terms of what states are going to be opening up adult use programs. Specifically, those states are Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North Dakota, and Oklahoma. And then separately, Nebraska is going after medical only at this time. But something interesting to note, and it's reflected in the article, is that some states essentially collected enough signatures to put these initiatives on the ballot which is putting the power in the hands of the constituents. You get enough signatures, it makes it on the ballot, people vote, you see cannabis laws be implemented. 
This is unfortunately not the case for other states, including Texas, which is why you see slower adoption, because it has to be introduced specifically by a politician instead of being brought to the table from the consumers and the constituents. Matt Schweitz, the deputy director of the Washington, D.C.-based Marijuana Policy Project, was quoted in the article saying, But at the same time, the territory is treacherous because of the trend for public officials to oppose marijuana legalization after voters have had their say and for courts to overturn the will of the voters. So sometimes even if your state can put things on the ballot because of signatures collected, it still can impact uh, the likelihood just due to how politics kind of flesh out. So we will see what happens for these six states, but that would be some good news in terms of expanding the nation's 19 states with adult use and the overall 33 states that have medical and adult use programs. The second story is from Marijuana Moment, and it was titled, Feds Seek Contractor to Help Test Marijuana Compounds in People's Breath. And I had to bring this up because I think this is only going to become more available as all aspects of the industry get to maturation. Similar to a breathalyzer for alcohol, the federal government will spend more than $1.4 million to study how the concentration of marijuana compounds in people's breath changes over time after consuming it. Part of an ongoing effort to create a reliable roadside test to screen drivers for recent cannabis use. The upcoming study, dubbed Breath Measurements of Acute Cannabis Elimination, or BASE, will look at how the concentration of cannabis compounds on a person's breath changes in the hours after using marijuana. At this time, the study will not measure impairment, just concentrations of compounds in breath. And this is all coming because elected officials in the U.S. House Appropriations Committee said in June that they remain concerned about people driving under the influences of substances. Now, I don't disagree that they should research this because how cannabis affects one person can vary, of course, person to person. But to me, cannabis and alcohol are not similar in how they affect our systems bioavailability wise. So I'll be curious how this study turns out and what type of information is going to be used as a qualifier for law enforcement to act. The last news I'll share with you today is from a piece in Yahoo Finance titled Cannabis, the U.S. is a $100 billion opportunity, Tilray CEO says. And before I get into the article and why it's important, it's important to understand who Tilray is if you're unfamiliar. Tilray is a global pharmaceutical cannabis lifestyle and consumer packaged goods company. They are headquartered in New York City. They also have operations in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Latin America, with growing actually cultivating facilities in Germany and Portugal. So they've got a lot going on. Clearly, they were founded in 2013. And so their CEO, Erwin Simon, said, if you look at cannabis today in the U.S., 93% of Americans want medical cannabis legalized and about 65% want adult use. So it's out there that a lot of people want cannabis legally. And as one of the largest growers of marijuana in the world, Tilray is looking to expand its market share by focusing on recreational and medical use cannabis. But the opportunities aren't constrained to the drug, Simon stressed. There's also a burgeoning market for cannabis-adjacent products in categories such as food, personal care products, and drinks. And it was quoted, what will happen once the U.S. legalizes the big companies like Diageo, which is an alcohol brand and distributor, Brown Foreman, ABI. He even thinks the Nestle's and the Unilever's will want to be in the cannabis industry because they know Gen Z millennials very much want those products. 
And then Cureleaf's CEO, Matt Darren, echoed Simon's sentiments, saying, We believe the future is in innovation, and many of these new categories that are coming online are really driving a lot of the growth in the industry. Darren highlighted the beverages category in particular as a major driver. It's still a small component of the market, he said, but we see that as one category that's going to continue to increase over time as new innovation occurs and as they become more widely distributed throughout the country. Let it be known, the big, scary, large industries with very deep pockets and lots of lobbyists already know about cannabis. And of course, they're preparing and figuring out how to get a piece of the pie. My thing is how the game board will be set is still undetermined, at least publicly to our knowledge, right? But I would suggest we resonate with their insight into innovation and think about how we as brands and business owners can leverage that because it is much easier to innovate small than at scale. So don't forget that. If anything I shared inspired you or made you outraged, please reach out and let's discuss why. And I'll include the links to those articles in the show notes for reference. I'm also going to be answering some of your questions directly on the show and already got some good ones flowing in that I'll get to here in a moment. But a friendly reminder to slide into the podcast DMs at to be blunt pod or reach out to me on LinkedIn, Shada Tarabi, and let me know what's on your mind and I'll answer your questions here. This one was submitted via Instagram from David here in Austin and he asked, what are some steps new business owners should follow before starting? And I think for me, it boils down to understanding what opportunities are available to you with the type of business you want to operate. For example, if you want to cultivate, can you legally do that where you live or where you anticipate on growing? What does it look like to secure a license, etc.? If you want to start a manufacturing business, what kind of products are you going to be able to manufacture? What kind of equipment and licensing do you need to operate? Are there certain cannabinoids that might be outlawed in your locale? For example, Delta 8 is illegal to manufacture in Colorado. And here in Texas, they recently made it illegal to manufacture and process smokable hemp flour. So if your plan was to build a pre-roll team in Texas, then that roadmap just got more complicated. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but there is certainly more friction now. So I would say to reiterate, figure out what is possible with the type of business you want to operate. Literally Google cannabis licenses in and then fill in the blank for your state or city and see what the requirements and options are. And that is the best place to start, in my opinion. If you would like me to answer your question on air next time, please reach out, ask the question, and I will do my best to share it here. And now getting into today's episode, I'm joined by Missy Bradley, one of the co-founders and head of marketing for Ripple. Ripple produces cannabis products consumers can rely on, including Ripple Quick Dissolves, the original fast-acting water-soluble THC powder, Ripple Quick Gummies, clinically proven to be two times faster than the competition, and Ripple Quick Sticks, the most convenient and fun way to get the fastest THC. They are a Colorado-based brand that has been operating since 2014. With their water-soluble THC powder, they really set the market trend for that type of onset for consumers and continue to influence the evolution of traditional food trends applied in the cannabis space. I had so many questions for Missy from how they've navigated the last eight years in a legacy market like Colorado, what impact neighboring states going online like Arizona and New Mexico have done for their state's market as a whole, and what do they prioritize as a company, and what makes the most impact in connecting consumers to their products and a whole lot more. So be sure to check out this video version of the episode on my YouTube channel. It'll be linked below in the show notes. You can also access it by searching for Shada Tarabi on YouTube. And 
Don't forget to hit subscribe when you make it over there. I still need 100 subscribers to get a custom name URL, which will make it easier to discover and find those episodes on YouTube. So please and thank you in advance. And without further ado, let's get straight to the episode. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Missy to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Shada. So Ripple itself is a water-soluble, dissolvable THC and CBD powder. We have since released other cannabinoids as well as we've evolved with the industry. But basically, it is a product to make anything inedible. When we first got into the industry, so I myself am a former journalist. I wanted to work for magazines my whole life, ended up working for a magazine, moving out to Colorado with my husband. And a friend of mine from growing up in Michigan approached me and said, I have an idea for a cannabis business I want to start in Colorado. Will you help us license it? And I said, absolutely not. That sounds terrible. It's not what I'm doing. It's not what I'm about. Uh, and this was, you know, back in 2013. So just just before Colorado went wreck. And I myself did not grow up smoking. I had a couple of times. It never really agreed with me. It didn't really know what was going on didn't mind that other people did it, but it just wasn't something that I was super into. So I didn't know how I could benefit from it. That initial product that we ended up launching was a microdose tea. It was a product that was meant to relax, not to intoxicate. It was still water tea, had two and a half milligrams of THC with either organic mint, green, or black tea. And it was very much that sort of after work unwind for the person who's drinking a glass of wine at night. And that I could connect with and that I got. And I thought there is so much opportunity in this market for something like that because I've never seen it. I didn't know anything like that existed at the time. And at the time, it really didn't. And in order to make the tea, we had to make a water-soluble form of THC because we didn't want you to have the experience. We had the oil slick sitting on the top of the cup. So we worked with some chemists here in Colorado to develop the initial formulation of that water-soluble THC. And at the time, it was just going into the tea. We were making these tea stick infusers. They had little holes all on the bottom and you would use it as your infuser for your tea and you could stir the product around in your cup. And it was wonderful. And one of my other co-founders and I started doing all of our in-store vendor days and talking to prospective consumers, talking to bud tenders. And there were so many people who were saying similar things, which were either that dose will do nothing for me or that sounds great. I don't drink tea. I don't care. And after a couple months of that, we thought, well, we don't have to stick with microdose. We can go to where the market is now, which was the full dose, 10 milligrams here in Colorado. And also we've created this water-soluble form of THC. If people don't like tea, they can put it in whatever they want. They can make anything they want inedible. Their favorite food, now inedible. So about six months after we launched the initial Stillwater Tea product in Colorado, we launched the first incarnation of Ripple and also Whitewater Tea, which was the 10 milligram version of our tea. And Ripple just took off. It became the best-selling beverage skew in Colorado because dissolvables were in a category. It wasn't a thing that existed. So everybody just kind of stuck them in with the beverages. And then the teas we had up and running for the better part of three, four years, and we ended up discontinuing them just because Ripple was what the company was known for. And that was sort of the thing that everybody could get behind because they recognized, hey, here's a product that is consistent and we can get to that in a moment, but a consistent product that I can use however I want. So it very much fit with the ethos of what we were starting, which was that 
we wanted to build this lifestyle product. We wanted to show people that cannabis could be used in different ways. And while we thought that that was only with microdose when we were starting out, the industry obviously just hasn't gotten there yet. It's taken much longer than we thought to sort of bring in those consumers that could benefit from the plant, but just are reticent. They're not quite here. And yeah, and and have something that people could use every day in different formats, morning, noon, night. I really appreciated you sharing that history, and which is personally like why the podcast is so fun for me, because I have a view of a brand. And obviously people can read, you know, the about me's or the Wikipedia if it exists to some extent. But getting to hear from someone who's, you know, part of the brand in your own words is just so impactful. And like I shared, I grew up going to Colorado and you touched on it a little bit too. The product that Ripple is as a dissolvable powder, like nobody was doing that. That was so new. I remember seeing it and thinking like, I can just, I can just put the powder on my tongue. Like I can put the powder in like whatever drink I want. And now you're seeing that application, if I can, you know, adopted broadly. Like there's products in California that are very similar. Um, I'm sure in other states operating as well, but, you know, listeners, as y'all should know, cannabis is very isolated state by state. So as Colorado being your marketplace, that was like crazy to me to see back then. I say back then as if it was like, you know, forever ago, but I'm sure time has been really, you know, drawn out for you just being in the industry as long as you've been, especially with the brand. But what I wanted to call out, which I think is really smart and especially, you know, for people trying to navigate the cannabis industry your original idea or your original product is not what you're presently doing. We're not in that expression, right? Like that expression mm-hmm. has evolved. And I think that that is so smart and so needed in our industry is, yeah, look at your SKUs, talk to people going into these environments, both from a consumer perspective, what are consumers saying? How are consumers using your product even? You know, how are the butt tenders selling it? What are they asking or feeling or, or listening to when consumers are trying to interact with them? And so I think those are really important conversations to be happening as we're trying to evolve and stay up with the industry. And so kind of going into that, um, you were talking about consistency and also if we can, you know, evolve, you now have other SKUs beyond just the dissolvable powder. You have Mm -hmm. introduced edible gummies onto the marketplace. And so I'm curious how you want, I guess, approach consistency because before we were hitting record, we were talking about the need for consistency, but also the reality when you're talking about the cannabis plant, like, yes, the same cultivator can grow it in the same conditions with the same, you know, inputs, but it can still have variability. And I think when you're looking at it from a consumer perspective who doesn't maybe fully understand cannabis, they're like, why does this product, you know, not work the exact same as it did last month when I bought it? And so having that conversation is, I think happening more frequently as the industry goes more mainstream. And certainly there are solutions and I'm going to call them kind of technologies. That's how I refer to them here on the podcast. So, you know, nano emulsification, things that allow for better absorption, which can then produce a more consistent effect. And so I'd love for you to touch on how consistency is replicated through Ripple products, as well as how you have leaned into other products in the marketplace with this technology. Absolutely. So. For consistency, when we launched that initial tea product, we had people approaching us often saying, I feel high quicker with your product than I do with other products. And we felt the same things, but we didn't know why. And we really wanted to understand why. 
So we took on what was our first clinical study. So testing the absorption rates of Ripple in humans. It was a really small study. We just wanted to see if what we were feeling would play out in the bloodstream. So we got a phlebotomist and we had everybody take 10 milligrams of Ripple on an empty stomach. And they also had abstained from THC for a couple of days. We had a washout period to see what the effects would be. And within 15 minutes, that first study, Ripple was absorbed into the bloodstream. So we thought, shoot, like this is the problem that has plagued edibles to this point is people would eat them and not understand when they were going to feel an effect. So then you eat more and then you have a horrible experience. Then you have the Marine Dad New York Times piece. So from that, we wanted to take it further. We didn't see anybody else in the industry who was studying their products, studying the products effects in humans. And we thought that was super important for the message that we wanted to tell. We knew we had created this product that was super versatile, that anybody could incorporate into their day. But we wanted to sort of show them what to expect. And we didn't just want to tell them. We wanted to come from a place of truth. That's always been very important to us in terms of adoption of the brand and the product, that we were truth tellers in the industry. A quick side note, there was somebody who had approached us very early on when we were in the initial stages of setting up the company who had said, why don't you just put shake in a bag? It'll sell. We thought, well, that's not what we're trying to do here. We see this industry as being something super important. And there, there is a definite opportunity to lift it up and to sort of shed that stigma that's been present for so long, for so many reasons. And so it's been very important for us to do this work. So then we ended up embarking on a study with Colorado State University, pharmacokinetics. So again, the absorption of a product into the bloodstream. And that study found that Ripple was absorbed within 10 minutes. We ran similar studies with CBD products just to show how our technology, as you mentioned, how we sort of carry the cannabinoids, the particle size. So not just that it is a small particle size, but an exact particle size, how the different carrier ingredients and the particle sizes can affect the absorption. And then we recently, last year, put out another study with our THC products showing that our products were two times faster than the leading gummy product in here in Colorado. It's been, I think, both a blessing and a curse because we are still one of the only companies in the industry doing this work. Bud tenders don't really know the difference between somebody just telling a story and somebody having published research. And other brands can kind of be a bit combative about it. We're not trying to take anybody else out. We're just trying to give consumers and bud tenders a lens with which to view our product. Hey, we know that we're absorbed within 10 minutes. Hey, we know that our products absorb two times faster than your best selling product. So that is a piece of consistency is knowing how fast. Then there is the actual manufacturing aspect of it. So we have created GMP certified facilities where you know that everything that is happening in there is the same level of consistency and structure as what's happening in your general in your consumer packaged goods, in the things that you buy off the shelf at a grocery store. We are paying very close attention to the fact that things are clean, they are consistently manufactured, and they are going out as they should be. They are tested, they are regulated. And then a separate piece of all of that is making sure that the messaging and the way that we are talking about the product, the way that we are presenting the product is consistent. So it's basically something that our consumers can rely on. They know that 
with every Ripple product, those same value propositions carry over. They know that they're getting the same effect, the same experience. Something interesting about water solubility, you know, you mentioned having a consistent effect for the consumer is that if you have a traditional edible, it's fat soluble. So anything that you ate that day, anything that you did that day can affect your absorption of that edible. With Ripple, much less so because you're starting to absorb it before you're actually metabolizing it. There's a lot more to unpack within that, but that's sort of how we offer consistency. Then when it comes to the new products, you also had mentioned something about you can just pour Ripple on your tongue. We had a long running consumer survey. So it's now been running for four years. We put little survey cards inside of our Ripple containers and ask consumers questions about the products. So many of our consumers were pouring unflavored Ripple onto their tongues that we thought, why don't we just create a product that's meant to pour directly onto the tongue? So we created Quick Sticks, which are flavored versions of Ripple, and they just taste like something versus tasting kind of like nothing. Really fun flavors. You know, all of the Ripple dissolvable products are super portable, so you can just put them in your pocket and take them wherever you want. So many people I know have them in their wallet, like in the little coin purse. (laughs) I definitely Um, have some Ripple in my purse right now. (laughs) Pretty standard place for Ripple, but you know, that that portability aspect is, is huge for the Ripple product. And then, you know, gummies being the largest segment of the edibles market, we wanted to add something to that that had a reason to exist. And its reason to exist was that it was fast acting. It's the only gummy that's made with Ripple. So here's Ripple, this product that you have come to know and love, and it now is available in a gummy format because people do love that fun candy aspect of cannabis edibles. And while Ripple is gluten-free, vegan, sugar-free, fits most any diet, any lifestyle, sometimes you just want a gummy. So we wanted to bring something to market where people could have Ripple in any form that they were really looking for. I think it is so remarkable when you look at the data. It's both good and bad, right? Where you're like, come on, we're making, you know, innovation happen and we're bringing new ways to consume to market. And people are like, no, I just want a gummy, you know, like at the end of the day, I just wanted enrobed in sugar. And it's like, okay, fine. We'll make gummies for you guys. No, you shared so much that I want to circle back around because this is where my brain is going. And if I'm too forward, let me know. But just the timeline of things, again, reflecting on Where the market has come and kind of gone from a Colorado perspective, y'all's technology is so forward thinking that, yes, now it's more adopted. You're seeing more brands kind of, you know, figure it out. And it's not that it was rocket science necessarily, but I'm really curious, how did you, I mean, you mentioned you were, you were working with these scientists and maybe formulators in the initial phases. How did you even like come to the conclusion, like we can benefit from this technology? Like, oh, this is going to be a differentiator for us in the market because I think that is such uh, interesting. Obviously, it's like the whole, not even just like the, it's like your brand is built around this component, this technology. And it just, to me, I'm like, how do you get there? Like, how do you decide, hey, this is what we're going to invest in? And then kind of like a secondary question to that, which is a little bit on, I guess the, you know, the investment side. Like, how did you decide like, okay, we're going to invest in this to bring someone on who's going to help us formulate this or do this science experiment to see what is capable with the cannabis plant. And then also wanted to give you some, you know, kudos to then investing in these studies, which is very foreign for our industry. 
and it should be done more frequently. But I think there's a big, I mean, like you're talking about, I'm like, I would love to do that. But like, how do I do that? So that's the question, right? It's like, how do you step into these solutions financially, even just philosophically? Like, how do you get there? Like, how are you like, you know what, this makes sense. And maybe it's a large sum of money that goes into it. But obviously it's, this is the outcome that we're going for. So yes, we're going to make this investment that this will be the outcome for us. But I just think, again, it's such a unique thing that y'all are doing that is not being done. And so I'm just curious, how did you get there like to those points? Yeah. So we were very lucky early on. We had an advisor when we were just starting to set up the company who ended up joining us as one of our first sort of full-time employees. And he had been in innovation and research at Mars Candy Company for over two decades. Very cool. So he has been instrumental in sort of showing us the ways of the food world because none of us have a background or had a background in food or manufacturing. And we were just kind of going out all blindly. And there are a lot of things that happen in everyday food that have not yet been applied to cannabis. And he just looked at it through a food lens. We always saw ourselves as a food company that was using cannabis as an ingredient. And he just solidified that for us. For the actual research component, I think it is a double-edged sword at this point because it is cost prohibitive. prohibitive. It is expensive. And where I stand now, I am super proud that we have done everything that we've done and we have marketing messaging that we can stand behind because we know that we are telling the truth. But I don't know that the industry, I don't know that it's paid off for us to have invested the kind of money that we have to have found the information that we did. One of the things that we found in our most recent pharmacokinetic study was that formulation matters. So, you know, we spoke a bit about nanoemulsification. You know, your particle size obviously matters, but your carrier ingredients matter just as much, if not more. So while we are doing this research on our products, we are uncovering things that may not work for other, like if your formulation is not ours, it doesn't matter that you are water soluble because you need to test your product. But, you know, laws being what they are, it is really hard. We had to have the researchers from Colorado State, they would come out in a van every weekend to our facility to administer all of the products that we were testing against. And lots of hours, lots of money, you know, people spending eight weekends in our facility for hours and hours and hours and not being able to consume cannabis during the week. So we were losing a lot of people to that. And then also just the rigor of the actual study. And that, and that was just one of them. So I think just the barriers to entry are so high. And that's where I see sort of the biggest hurdle is that we need to figure out as an industry, how do we research at less cost? Like, how do we all come together to decide this is important? We want to know this, whether or not we want to tell other people, we want to know what's happening. And it's important for all of us. And like, how do we get that research done? Yeah, it's so foreign. Yeah, I like to feel that as an industry, you know, we are inclusive and we have each other's backs. And sometimes I don't think it feels like that. And, you know, really like we need to help lift each other up. Like, I think it's super important, especially where we are right now in Colorado. Well, I appreciate you sharing that so transparently and candidly, because I do think, you know, 
it, it is a question that I think needs to be addressed like you're sharing, right? Like we should all be in pursuit of the same type of research and qualifications just so we know what we are ingesting and consuming. And I love that you were sharing too about this, this member of your team, one of these early advisors and his lens of looking at it from a food perspective and and just kind of like that comment. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And and yeah, what is happening in food technology and even just like the mass food industry that maybe consumers don't really realize that's why they like certain products, but it's that subconscious, you know, they're hitting on certain umami notes or or flavor profiles or the crunch or whatever it might be that is making it more enticing for you to be consuming. And yeah, how do you apply that to cannabis and not to degrade our own industry, but we were talking before we went live, you know, consumers, the reality is they just want to get high. And I think that as brands, these altruistic, like we want to help people. And it's not that the people don't really care about what they're putting in their bodies. I, I do believe they do. I think that's why you're seeing certain brands rise above and also just the 10 year, I think hitting these certain uh, milestones in years is really key too, because people look at us here in Texas and it's like, you got to strap in and hang on. Like it's not, you're going to, oh, you think you're going to get legalization. You're going to be the brand and it's going to take off and people are going to come. It's like, no, <laughs> can you hang in above the market? Can you adapt? Can you introduce products? Can you get consumer feedback and kind of evolve? But it's all kind of punctuated by this idea of people don't really know <laughs> what they're going after. And so all these different interval points as the brand incorporated into the bud tender experience incorporated. I mean, I love that you highlighted, which I would love to get into a little bit of the marketing stuff, but inside the packaging, you're actually creating touch points to connect with your consumer, which I know is lost when you are dealing a regulated market because you cannot sell direct to consumer. So how do you capture that consumer's attention and create some sort of you know, sounding board back to you, the brand, where usually you're kind of restricted to going through these dispensaries. So it's just very fascinating to kind of hear some of these real life, you know, challenges, because I'm sure people listening, I know I feel a lot of the things that you're expressing and going through too. And so kind of with that, looking at it from a marketing lens, you know, what has been marketing in the industry been like for you? What are some of the channels that you find are most successful? And yeah, how do you create that conversation? I think to the target consumer is what we're all trying to go after, right? It's like, who's that person at the other end of the screen, the counter, the whatever that is perhaps going to add my product to cart and become a customer? I'm really curious, you know, how y'all look at that. So much of what we have been doing recently outside of those direct-to-consumer touch points, so where we are actually able as a brand to speak to our own consumer, the inserts in packaging, QR codes on packaging, you know, anything that we can do in a dispensary setting to capture the attention of a consumer. We've been really honing in on our relationships with our bud tenders because, you know, you spoke to knowing who to sell to or who is that person who comes in. And that's really where the bud tenders are at the front line. So we can teach them more about our products, who we think our products are good for, or how to spot a ripple consumer. And then they can do the work of selling the product to the right person. You know, we would hate for our product to end up in the wrong person's hand because then they don't have the experience that they're looking for. And, you know, to go back to something else that you were talking about, while people may not understand what's happening in their food stream with the foods that they eat every day, there is a reason that people are turning to cannabis 
And we need to do a better job as an industry to meet that consumer's needs. And, you know, we are going to see more and more people looking for sort of that natural alternative to whatever the ailment or, you know, the function that they're looking for. And so marketing kind of as a brand, there's so much we can say about our product, but it's industry marketing that we need to be doing. So really trying to figure out how we get out to events where it's not necessarily a cannabis event, but something where we would have consumers who might cross over. It was a lot of the work that we were doing pre-pandemic. Pandemic obviously changed everything for us. And we're just starting to get back to it again. But those face-to-face conversations with consumers are potential. Consumers are super important. And then really the bud tender, engaging the bud tender, letting them know as a brand how we're different, you know, asking how we can help them. Because at the end of the day, they have a super tough job because people are either coming in there looking at price per milligram, like I just want to get as high as possible, or they are looking for something and they don't know what it is. So yeah, it, it is tough. You know, we've tried all of the sort of programmatic display, the newsletters. We've tried to engage on pretty much every platform that has ever been presented to us. And really, I think the best work that we can do is the smaller stuff, is making sure that we're having smaller, more meaningful conversations as opposed to, hey, I saw your ad while I was browsing. Do you find that, and maybe I know the answer, so I'm just asking to hear, you know, from your perspective, but are you able to track and attribute a lot of these activities to building the brand, to dollar sold, to, you know, give some sort of qualification, quantification of these efforts? Because I'll share a little bit, you know, from my perspective, I come from events prior to getting into cannabis. I did event marketing and I hated when our executives were like, how successful was that event? And you're like, oh, we met a lot of people. We gave out a lot of swag. They loved us. Like, yeah. How many sales did you make? How many emails did you get? And so there is some aspect of like, yes, my brain does understand that, you know, you don't just want to go to things and kind of not know what's working. And so to your comment earlier too, that you just shared about, you're kind of trying all these different things. I know that there's not just one thing that moves the needle. You do kind of have to have your pulse. So again, for you listeners who are like looking for the magic pill to like get your brand out into the consumers, you know, world, you have to do all of these things, but maybe a little bit of where I'm coming from too is understanding again, there's a lot of turnover in this industry. So especially from, let's say, a bud tender perspective, and maybe my observation is incorrect, but I'd be curious your perspective operating in Colorado, this legacy market, it's been, you know, existing for the past, you know, X many years. If that's an avenue for you to get your brand in front of people and there's so much turnover, like how do you actually track, hey, when we go do these activities at this dispensary or at this event that that's actually going to net you the outcome that you're seeking? Or is it kind of just like, well, when I don't do it, (laughs) it doesn't help. So I do those things and hopefully it's, you know, making an impact to the bottom line. It's a lot more of the latter for sure. <laughs> Attribution is horrid. As you know, it, yeah. it's just because we don't sell online. Yeah. We can't really track a consumer to their purchase. There are some emerging technologies that we've been looking into that may allow us to have more of that post-purchase relationship with a consumer. 
And so that's super intriguing and, and we're going to follow that as far as we can. But really, it's just about making sure that we show up and we show up as ourselves. We are telling the right message and we are there for both the consumers and the bud tenders. We have a four-person field sales specialist team. They are in charge of our vendor days and dispensary visits. And they are at God knows how many pop-ups every week, just meeting with consumers and talking about the products. And it's not about how many they sell during the hour or two that they are in a dispensary. It's about having those meaningful conversations that we can't directly attribute that to product that may be sold once they leave. Sure, we can look at how much was sold when they were there, but you know there, there are different avenues where we can see, hey, a store has a spike. What can we attribute that spike to? Oh, well, we did a pop-up there last week. And, you know, ex-bud tender loved chatting with us and really understood the product. And so those are kind of the nuances of it, I guess. But we recognize that we have to be out there for people to know us because otherwise we're just going to sit on the shelf and the bud tender is not going to recommend us and the customer is not going to ask for us. Yeah, follow up to that. And just from, again, what I've understood, especially about Colorado, my listeners know I spend the most time there. So it's like probably the most you know, exposed that I can be in terms like a marketplace that I don't exist in as a brand myself. I know that there's a lot of pay to play with shelf space. I, we just talked about, you know, a lot of like bud tender turnover. I'm curious how, like, how do you handle competition, right? And so when you're looking at some of these same, same, but different, I mean, again, my observation is you guys really were one of the first, if not the first, at least in my mind, to market with this technology that's fast absorbing. And and now you see other brands have that same label claim. So competition wise, it's it's just, it's interesting when you're kind of isolated to doing business in a state, you know, you kind of know where the boundaries are. You mentioned you have these like, you know, X amount of people who are, their job is dedicated to like going into these dispensaries and having these conversations and representing the brand. I'm just curious, like, do you see other brands doing the same? Do you see the brands that maybe aren't having a shorter life cycle in some of these dispensary situations to be more candid, you know, with you and the listeners too? I am super fortunate with the podcast, talk to a lot of really great brands all across the United States. And like I'm almost prepared for what you're about to say because I hear it from the big brands. Like you're a big brand to me. Like you've been in this industry for longer than most people in your marketplace. And so it's like, how do you stay on top of the competition? How do you stay on top of these touch points for consumers who quite frankly, they don't know the difference? You know what I mean? And so it's like, I kind of know what you're going to say, but I'm curious from your perspective, because I think people assume, oh, you're that brand and like you have to do these things. It's like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you cannot take your foot off the gas. You will be lost. And I think something that we have done really well is we've tried to stay consistent as a company very much a part of what we do, a part of what we represent to the products, but just sort of tried to stay the course because we want to stick around. It's not because we're thriving at all times. It is because we know what it takes to stay and we have to not be reactionary. I think that's something that has been super important for us because there is always that new brand coming online that's doing something really crazy that has a huge marketing budget. We've never had a huge marketing budget. So we are just always trying to figure out what is going to make the most impact with what we have. And staying relevant is tough. You know, we're, we're not new anymore. And we still understand or we believe that we have a product that 
has a reason to exist. And I think that's what we're all sort of fighting for. But it is a fight. It is a daily fight to maintain that relevance, to, you know, get shelf space where we don't have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for it, to build the relationships with other dispensaries, not just with the bud tenders, with the managers, with the buyers, and to make sure that people know why we exist and why we deserve to exist. Do you notice when you, like using just the example of like paying to play for shelf space, like do you notice like when you do that placement and I'll share a quick little personal story, which I did touch on. I think if people listen to the Chiba Cheese episode, I went into a dispensary and I was, if you know me, I love light shade. I like shopping at light shade. They're like my go-to. And I do love light shade. When I get off the airplane, it's like right there, the first little dispensary, you know, just drive a couple minutes. But it's so interesting. It's like, I, again, I know the environment. I'm very familiar with it. And I see certain products and I was looking for a product that they had just launched that was not, I guess, not even like on the shelf, but like not at the dispensary at the time either. Like that was a whole separate conversation with them. And it's in the episode. And if you've anything to add to that kind of experience too, I'd love to hear it where just because you're a brand and people know you, you might not have certain skews at the dispensary just because of all these constraints that they're navigating against. But I was having this conversation with the bud tender and there's obviously the display and there's X amount of products in the display. I believe Ripple is in their display, at least was when I was there. And that's just like of you. And then I had to talk to the bud tender. And then, of course, they have their little computer screen and they're like, oh, well, if you want to feel this way or if you're like, oh, you're looking for that type of, you know, disposable thing, whatever, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't even see that here. I wouldn't even know you had that product if I didn't you know, ask that question or disclose information that I am searching for. And so I can imagine how that placement could impact sales because again, consumers, like one of my favorite exercises, and I feel like I talk about it a lot, but I love to reiterate it because it's such good marketing advice. Like go to the grocery store and just look at products that you gravitate towards on the shelf and then start realizing what's at your eye level, what is, you know, underneath, what's above. And kind of just like understand that, you know, nuance is very intentional. So it looks nuanced to you as the consumer, but it's very intentional to direct your eye, to encourage people to add certain products to cart and things like that. And so the point is, I can tell that those do help when I'm in that environment. But I also realize that it's, you know, just like a component to communicating the benefit and the effect of a brand. And so I don't know if you have anything to add to kind of that experience that, I felt as a consumer who very much knows what I'm looking for, but as a brand, it's like, yeah, how do you cut through all that noise to like get that person to realize and recognize, hey, I'm the product that you need. <laughs> yeah. It, merchandising can be huge. And, you know, some stores are really sophisticated and they have merchandisers and some are just throwing things up willy nilly. They don't really care what you have to say. They don't want your displays. They want to do their own thing. And That is super difficult to navigate because, you know, you're talking about a grocery store experience. There are people who are putting things in certain places for a purpose and you're grouping like items together and you have that experience of wandering the store and and sort of, especially if it's your local store, you know where you're going for what thing. You're in a dispensary, you were there one week and you're there the following week. Things may be in completely different places, like across the store from where they were. And also you don't have that general browsing experience. You have usually under counter and behind counter. And that tends to be what you're dealing with, except 
with the exception of some of these newer environments, like in Michigan, where some of the stores have more of a browsing experience. Mm -hmm. And so they're standing out as a brand. So what does your packaging look like? What are the display materials looking like? And then there's actually getting that space, whether you have to pay for it, where you have to make the decision, is this store worthy of that spend? And that's a calculation that we make every day. And then, you know, are there other things that we can do that don't involve spend? Is there a way that we can work with the store in product and credit? You know, how do we get that space? Because it is impactful and it does influence decisions sometimes. But we have also seen in stores where we've had pretty elaborate displays that bud tender says another product and the person walks out with another product. So there's the merchandising aspect. And then there's also the promotional aspect. You know, are we offering a discount in that store? So often that is a way that we see new consumers coming in. And based on those that survey research that we have, 80% of Ripple customers return to Ripple. So if we can make that sale at a deep discount, we're usually going to get them back. So that's the other sort of calculation. Those are the things that we weigh against. You know, Are we going to pay for the shelf space? Are we going to pay for the shelf space in tandem with promotion? It just really depends on the store, the location, the customers, and then how they're willing to work with us. It is individualized, you know, even within the chains where we may have 10, 15 stores, it is an individualized approach to each shop. My brain is exploding. You don't have to maybe say explicit numbers if you don't want to, but I'm curious how many dispensaries are you in? Like, how do you manage all of those relationships, all those touch points? It's 300 plus. Shit. And to something you mentioned earlier, it's not all SKUs. So where we have, I'm going to throw a number out, I think 11 SKUs right now. You know, some have two, some have all, some have five. And it's mixing and matching depending on what they think will work for their customer base, what they like best, what their bud tenders like best. So yeah, it's hundreds of stores. And then however many product combinations that is, I cannot do that fast math. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. No, you're good. This is not a math show. Don't worry. (laughs) But it is an interesting, you know, just kind of like line in the sand to kind of understand the diligence. And and you said it earlier, your foot has to constantly be on the gas because I can imagine if you, let's say, pay attention to this chain too much and not to this chain, I'm sure there's some competition and also just opportunity for maybe a competitor to you to come in and take a meeting with somebody. And it's just like you're constantly trying to kind of, you know, stay top of mind, which is a really big theme that I resonate a lot with. And I try to speak on as much as I can because people want to overcomplicate marketing. They think they need to have these huge budgets. And and yes, I think if you have like a million dollars to spend, your brand is going to be everywhere. And so by, you know, just sheer volume, yes, you will have brand awareness and brand presence and sales, but consistency and just, you know, 
beating the drum. (laughs) And that to me is really where I think brands can find the most success for the long play in this industry is just by having some sort of plan. I don't think the plan obviously has to be the same. Now that you're talking to the same dispensary every day, you're having the same, you know, conversations, or maybe you are just like, you know, variations depending on who you're talking to. But it is kind of like a very proactive, you have to be aggressive in this market and in this industry to to exist and to survive. And so I think earlier you said too, it's like not everything is like, you know, thriving or like going to be like super successful. And I think that's a myth that I love dispelling, not to discourage people from the industry, but just to be really realistic. If you can't tell if anybody's listening who's new here, you know, I like to just be blunt and call it what it is because I do believe that we can all learn together. I do believe that there's a lot to go around. But with that said, I know that we were talking a little bit too about just Colorado in general. And so I don't know if you want to touch on just kind of the Colorado marketplace. What are your observations from being in the industry as long as you have been? How has Colorado as a state evolved? Has it become more friendly to do business? Do you find there are new consumers constantly coming online? Do you feel like the impact of your surrounding states like Arizona and New Mexico going online is impacting sales? And just kind of like things in that vein, I'm just curious, you know, to hear from your perspective. Again, I think people glorify cannabis and they glorify the industry and they give a lot of credit to Colorado being this legacy state. And all those things are true, but also this is the reality of operating in the industry. And so real talk, you know, how has it been surviving, you know, this last decade? (laughs) So thankful that we are here today. It's rough. So Colorado right now, I believe the industry as a whole was down 20 something percent in terms of year over year sales. Now, it makes sense in that we had this huge spike during COVID times because we were deemed an essential business and people were super stressed out. So everybody turning to cannabis, you know, legacy state, people, people knew what they were getting. The other state coming online has taken a lot of business away from those border towns where we usually saw spikes in sales. And then also, you know, with hemp-derived cannabinoids, hemp-derived THC coming online and people finding different avenues to get their cannabis products, I think Colorado has taken a hit. But, you know, I've also heard and seen signs that we're going to level out and everybody's going to kind of go back to where they were, just kind of churning. But so many people look at cannabis and see gold rush, see money. And that's just not what people are operating in. You know, I've heard a lot of reports of shops waiting to pay vendors until they get money in. You know, it's money in, money out. And it is super tough to see because we are an essential business. We are part of the fabric of Colorado. And I think that if we all can hang on long enough to sort of see it level out, that we're going to be fine. But it's just, you know, COVID being what it was and then everything else that has sort of happened in tandem and, you know, pending recession or are we in a recession? It's hit consumers' pockets. We just dropped the price of all of our Ripple products so that hopefully people can still afford them. And we really like I said, to start this all out, we're happy that we're here, that we get to survive another day. Yeah, I think it's 
unfortunately, the reality of business, Fred, I think people neglect to put cannabis in the same lens as any other industry being impacted by some of these external forces. But then you do have the volatility of being a cannabis business that adds more complexity when you have states that perhaps didn't have legal markets now have legal markets and consumers maybe don't have to drive five hours. They can just drive one hour or 30 minutes. And so it's just the accessibility of these products, I think, is shaking things out. What is like leveling out to you? Like, do you see regulations or restrictions on how many operators there are? Like, would that help leveling out? Like you look at some states like Oklahoma, where they're just a free-for-all and I have so many friends' brands and they're struggling to survive because you really have to be the brand that that consumer is picking. And so it's like, does a state like Colorado that has been existing for so long in this way, look at it like, hey, maybe, maybe we gave out too many licenses. Like maybe we don't need as many. Like, is there a way to cap how many people are doing edibles, for example, but then you reflect on that with kind of like the food conversation, capitalism, fight to the finish, like who's the best beverage or who's the best candy bar? And so it kind of makes you more, you know, how do you stay competitive and get your brand out there and kind of those things. So I'm just curious, like in a perfect world, what does that leveling out of the market look like for you? I mean, for us, it's consistency in seasonality. So understanding what our revenues are, being able to forecast, being able to plan for things. I think, you know, even though Colorado has been wrecked for as long as it has, we are still learning new things. And to go back to something I mentioned very early on, the industry hasn't grown as quickly as we anticipated that it would in terms of the customer, in terms of the people who are frequenting dispensaries and the people who are still afraid to go into a dispensary. I think that's something that I sort of grapple with every day is that it, it should be con- it should be a grocery store. It should be able to be sold like alcohol. We had a horrid experience at a wedding expo years ago, early 2018, where there was an alcohol vendor across from us giving samples and we were just there to represent the brand. It was the tea brand at the time. And Somebody called the cops on us and said that we were giving out infused product and somebody got sick. We had cupcakes from a local store, these little mini cupcakes, just because we wanted to come. We wanted people to come chat with us. And meanwhile, there is a vendor across from us giving out alcohol. And I just, it pains me every day to see that there's a liquor store on every corner Mm -hmm. and, you know, go in as you wish. And cannabis is still this like severely restricted thing that people are not dying from. It's not hurting people. And that's, I I think crazy. (laughs) It's a whole other thing. Like them, they're the bad ones. (laughs) But I think that sort of plays into it is, you know, there still is that stigma because it is so isolated, because it is so regulated. It's like, oh, that must be bad. Like you have to show your ID to go into that store. And, you know, the kids can't go into that store. It's bad stuff. Meanwhile, it's all behind the counter. It's all in child-resistant containers. And there just needs to be some merging of cannabis and general grocery or cannabis like alcohol, something that brings it forward as opposed to keeping it as this like lock and key thing. So yeah, the way that you can plan in general CPG, you sure. know, you know, when your spikes are, you know, you know, when you're going into holidays, you know, when you're going into summer or 420, whatever the season may be, the holiday may be, you can plan for it. We can't plan for anything, at least not well. And, you know, there's the saying, make plans and God laughs. Like that is cannabis. 
It's just trying to figure out how we keep the wheels on the bus and how we make moves thoughtfully. You know, every day it's a consideration of, does this make sense? Will this make sense? If it doesn't, how can we walk back easily? No, that is a beautiful sentiment. I think that that needs to be like placard like everywhere just so people can like fully absorb it, acknowledge it, face it every day. And, you know, it's not to make light of it either, but it's like you have to become comfortable with the uncomfortability. And this is the nature of the game. And just your thoughts are making me think, again, just in this mass scheme of of what is legalization at a federal level? Like, what are we all kind of fighting for or anticipating? And And it is really remarkable when you have a state like Colorado that was so isolated for so many years as this, you know, green, I hate using the term like green rush from a like business perspective, but the green rush, like consumers, they were Mm -hmm. rushing to Colorado, not just for the beautiful Rocky Mountains, but because you could get high and go skiing. It was awesome. That was me like every winter for the last like 10 years. But now that you have these states surrounding, not mine though, definitely not mine anytime soon, turning online, that just shows until you do have parity with every state, having some offering Like, again, I think people don't fully realize there are dry counties in California. I'm sure Colorado has some. I think Colorado Springs, I think, used to be dry. I think they've changed. It still still is. They should be coming online, but still. Colorado Springs is one of my favorite places to see. Love those Garden of the Gods. And yeah, always had to go to Manitou. Couldn't go Go to the zoo. Yes. (laughs) I had to get creative. But the point is, right, you know, you have cities or municipalities that maybe didn't want to adopt full cannabis accessibility, but the state had it. And so I think until you see every state having some access to cannabis, it's going to be this volatility, just kind of sucking and pulling resources in different directions. Like we spent a lot of time in New Mexico. Uh, My fiance is doing some cultivation work over there. And that market, what, just went online in April and they're like, oh, we're, you know, $4 billion. I'm like, give it two years. Like, just wait. (laughs) It's going to level out. And I think it's exciting for the brands and the businesses who are taking advantage of the spike, right? But it's not a true expression of what that industry is going to be like. And so I agree. I think that that would be a nice thing to have for us all who are trying to exist in this ecosystem, just to like know, like you said, hey, 420 is coming up. We know that's going to be, you know, a significant holiday. But on that note, I think for us on our side, even from a hemp, you know, CBD, but very much hemp Delta 9 THC as you're talking about industry, we saw a decline on, four, not I wouldn't say decline, but we didn't see as much of a spike on 420. And I think those are then indicated of external forces like what's happening with our economy and just other world mm-hmm. events that are impacting, you know, the wallet and the bottom line for the consumers who are putting these products in their cart. So it's a very dynamic, not a one size fits all kind of approach to it. But I had kind of one, one, maybe two final questions. I wanted to circle back around. You were talking about because of the economy impacting the dollar for the consumer, you lower prices. You mentioned earlier, I was talking about promotions. I'm curious how you approach promotions. Are you able to do things, maybe you can't sell direct to consumer, but can you do a mailer to people in a particular neighborhood? Like where are the boundaries of how you get coupons or promotions? Is it all through the dispensaries? And kind of how do you approach that? Because I imagine that is, like you said, it if you can make the initial purchase more palpable on the front end, that person will, like you said, 80% be a Ripple customer ongoing. So 
Mm-hmm. knowing that's the data like how do you lean into that? i'd be doing coupons everywhere i'd be like you're the grocery store like littering people's cars and is that legal to do with some of the cannabis regulations because i know we have a harder time than just other businesses <laughs> yes but so we would love to blanket coupon but going back to the dispensaries being all individualized they all have different point of sale systems so they have to use their own couponing system. Nightmare. So if you want a coupon, you can do it with potentially a chain. We tried direct mail years ago. It was one of the very first things that we tried because we were trying to look at cannabis as a general marketplace and, you know, all of the same marketing rules apply. And we made sure that we had a list that was 21 plus. We were targeting seniors with the tea product and we were sending them to one dispensary. It was one of our very first dispensaries that had agreed to do the promotion with us. And they had no fewer than three people call and complain that they had received this piece of direct mail. And why were we selling them or why were they selling them drugs, which was fascinating. And, you know, this was back in 2016. And as far as promotions, again, much easier to do with a chain that has a bunch of stores. A lot of shops have their own promotional schedule. So they'll do something like Munchy Monday, Tasty Tuesday. And so we'll try to get on board on that. And sometimes it's a pay to play. Sometimes it's product, credit, whatever it may be. And other times we will approach stores and say, you know, hey, we have a promotion we'd love to run for the summer. We recently, we did some limited edition July 4th label. We partnered with Color of Cannabis here in Colorado and we we're trying to run promotions around that label. So it was on our, it was on our pure 10 SKU because that's our best selling SKU, which is just pure THC. We had it wrapped. We had a local artist do the artwork for it. And, you know, we're trying to get that out there to the consumer so we can place table tents. We can try to run a, an individualized promotion with the store so that people have a discount on the Riffle product. But again, you're dealing with 300 plus stores because most all of those stores carry the Riffle Pure SKU and trying to figure out, you know, within the sales reps and the field sales specialists that we have, how we get coverage on those. Because you can't run a promotion and then let it sit. You have to have people in the shop. We have to be doing vendor days. We have to have materials to let people know if the store is not letting people know that, hey, this product is on promo. This product is on sale. So anything and everything, but who knows at this point? No, that's very helpful to just kind of like grasp, I think, just to put it in perspective, right? Again, I think my whole intention with these conversations is to obviously highlight brands so that people become familiar with them, but also they become inspired by what you're doing. And again, I think imitation is the biggest form of flattery. So it's like you can recreate everything that we are talking about, but like good luck to them because it takes, you know, your uniqueness, your proprietary information, how you approach things to like execute on the cylinders that you're executing, which is why I'm a big believer of sharing is as bluntly and as transparently as I can. And I always appreciate when my guests do the same, but it is wild to fathom in a market like this, where you are so reliant upon other people for the success of your brands. You don't have the luxury of saying, okay, I want to do coupons or I want to do a promotion how long does it take you to, let's say, execute this idea, especially when you're talking about labeling and packaging of a particular product? You're like, okay, we want to do this label and packaging for July. Like, when did you start to pull the artists together? Do you do labels in-house? Like, how does that component come together? And then what's the timeline with like that in the dispensary of like, okay, we're going to do this promotion and we're going to need to get you the new products in your stores. And then we're going to set up all these 
touch points of vendor days and education and blah, blah, blah. And, and obviously it's just like, I just want to understand like that ecosystem of mm-hmm. we want to do a new label. We want to do a promotion. Like how does that even work for you guys? Yeah. So it's anywhere from four to six months on our end. And okay. it depends on who we're partnering. We, we like to do give backs as part of limited edition labels to have more of a reason for them to exist, not just something novel and fun. So securing that partner, securing an artist, you know, having the labels printed. So we don't print in-house. We have designers in-house, but we don't print in-house. And so that can take anywhere from eight to 10 weeks, depending on if we're getting physical proofs of product. Then we actually have to wrap and fill those bottles in-house. So we're usually giving a month to production to make sure that we have inventory to then be able to send out and to try to hit the timelines knowing this was a July 4th label. So, you know, we don't want it sitting on shelves in October, but we also don't want it on shelves in May. You know, we want to try to hit the season of it, try to produce enough so that they're not sitting and we're not running through them too quickly. So, yeah, it usually takes us about four to six months to concept it. And then the sales team is probably out there at least two months in advance, running the idea by the stores, letting them know that it's happening, giving them all of the materials and, you know, taking requests from shops who are super excited about it. You know, all of the shops would eventually get it just because of how the sales cycles work. But we want to give priority to the shops that want to promote it. And yes, it's a lot of sort of individual conversations again of, hey, we're doing this thing. Would you like to get on board? We'll put you on the list. So I bet you're working on holiday things right now, or they should have already been started. We just, yeah, fall is is printed in nice. a bag, ready to go out. So nice. yeah, we're going to start in on Thanksgiving. Oh, very good. Do y'all ever do any, like, do you play into like the pumpkin spice flavor? That is the fall campaign. It's nice. infusing your own pumpkin spice. It looks very fall inspired. I have joked for far too long and it hasn't come to existence yet that we need a pumpkin spice quick stick flavor yes because in gummy form it just feels a little weird but as something you pour on your tongue it's a little more fun oh yeah Um, it could work (laughs) we had a an instant coffee for a while called clockwork coffee so around that time i was thinking that we could have a pumpkin spice mixing and that would be really fun but yeah for thanksgiving it's huge for us because you can make your whole feast into an edible using riffle So we have a lot of fun with all the ways to use Ripple with Thanksgiving. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com. 